Welcome to Crosstown Ministries Expositional Studies. We're excited to continue our study in John chapter 2. We're finding powerful and transforming truth in the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. We've been investigating this passage for some time and have divided it up into slices for presentation purposes. The basic divisions are verses 12 through 16, which is the actual event itself, and then verses 17 through 25, which are the different responses to what Jesus has just done. Our point of study for this month will be John 2, 18 through 22, which records the response of the Jewish leaders of Israel. This time, I want you to shut off your CD, open your Bible, and read our selected passage. Uh, in verses 12 through 16, we find the account of what Jesus did in the temple. Uh, this is the actual report of the events that took place that day. Uh, it's not difficult to see through Jesus' actions here in verses 12 through 15, for they are interpreted by his own words in verse 16. This verse serves as a commentary for the prior four verses. Jesus tells the money changers plainly to stop making his father's house into a house of merchandise. Due to their activity in the temple, the meeting place with God has become a meeting place of robbers and thieves. It has turned from a house of meeting and worshiping God to a house that is functioning around money. It has ceased to be what God has intended it for it to be. Now, as earlier noted, the remaining verses in the chapter, verses 17 through 25, is the dip, records the different responses to what Jesus has just done. It is almost to go without saying, when focusing on our passage, that the Jewish leaders of Israel, whom John refers to as the Jews, are seemingly on a different page than Jesus. Every word spoken by Jesus and every motive of his actions are missed by his opponents. The conversation in verses 18-22 through 22 is one that is difficult to understand. There arises in the reader's mind questions as to how one could misunderstand Jesus. Uh, was it by fault of theirs or even a lack of communication on Jesus' part? At first glance, this seems possible, for he seems so vague in his conversations with them and even refuses to clarify his words and actions when it is evident that they do not understand him. I mean, why not give them another sign that they could not deny, one more plain and powerful? Why not give clearer illustrations? Why not a plainer example? These are valid questions that seem to surround thoughts on this passage. However, if we can catch a glimpse of what John is wanting us to see here, it will shed a clearer light on the meaning in this section and provide understanding to us that Jesus did all that he could have done and should have done in their presence. Uh, there are several themes in this section that John will expound on throughout the remainder of his book. There is the hint of his death and resurrection, his person as being the very temple of God, and his authoritative actions, which speak of the authority that only the Christ would possess. These are all valid themes that could be discussed, but they do not seem to be the thrust of this section. There seems to be a focus that goes beyond these themes and centers on the ignorance of the Jewish leadership of Israel as to the identity of who Jesus truly is. This seems to be ironic for us to understand, for Jesus being the very working of God should be evident to them. I mean, who else would see him? These are the experts in the law and the representatives set aside by God for God's use. If anyone would see God, it would be this group. However, this is not the group that sees him or understands his message. Therefore, this section is marked by a natural contrast, which is also the main subject of John for us. He sets his contrast up by recording back-to-back -back two different responses to what Jesus has done. The contrast is between the disciples of Jesus in verse 17 and their response to Jesus, and then that of the Jewish response in, in our present passage, verses 18-22. through 22. One is a response by the least likely, the other by the most likely. One is marked by insight, the other by ignorance. One is highlighted by response to truth, and the other by rebellion to the same. 
We trust that you will see along with us the undeniable working of God in this section and in turn see the response of the Jews as being rebellion against truth and therefore rebellion against Jesus himself. At this time we would like for you to join us in a revival setting where we will investigate the truth of this passage in greater detail. Well, good evening. Open your Bibles up to uh, John chapter 2. Glad you made it out this uh, Saturday evening. Many places you could be. I appreciate you being here. There we go. Bad if those things fell off, wouldn't it? We've been looking at uh, the temple scene and uh, a little bit uh, in, in uh, other parts of John chapter 2. And we want to continue that uh, this evening. And uh, of course we have, uh, we have divided this up. I really appreciate you being here this evening. We're really excited about the, the passage we're looking at. And, and uh, as a side note here, um, it kind of just rolls over. And uh, what we've been looking at this week just kind of rolls right into uh, th- this section. Of course, we've been looking at a series study this week. We've been looking at the entire temple scene in John. And so it's just one thing right after another. And we're just, we're going exactly where John is going. We're kind of following him in his message and what he's trying to talk to us about in this passage. So I'm really excited about sharing with you the next step of it. And of course, uh, we've been looking uh, at verses 12 through 16 kind of as the starting point of this passage. We understand that in verses 12 through 16, it's the actual uh, event that took place. That that's actually what Jesus did in the temple scene. For those of you who weren't here, uh, we looked at that the other night, and Jesus comes in, and of course, he is, uh, his mood changes. He's gotten there early. It's the celebration of the Passover that, of course, is celebrated each year. It's a commanded by God type of thing. He shows up with his, with his family, his mothers, his brothers, sisters, and of course, his disciples, and he's there to celebrate. He comes into the temple courts, and he is moved. And the words that, uh, uh, of course, the disciples have in verse 17 for this being moved is he is zeal, filled with zeal. Still with zeal. He, he, he of course, uh, he, he runs and he grabs some cords. He twists them together into a whip. And he chases all from the temple area. And he tells this, he tells us in verse 16, the very motive of why he did it. Uh, this is, this is, it goes beyond buying and selling within the temple. Now, should there be buying and selling in the temple? Well, I, I don't know. Other than just tell you that that's not what he's addressing here. Because verses 12 through 15... Those verses are explained by verse 16. And Jesus does not mention, well, I really don't want you buying and selling that kind of stuff in the temple. The reason he is upset is because they have turned the temple, which Jesus calls his father's house, into something that it's not. They turn it into a marketplace. Now, as we've been talking about the father's house, that that type of terminology, that language, uh, also referred to uh, throughout the Bible as the house of God, the place where God dwells, type of deal. That's not necessarily referring to specifically a building. It's not referring to specifically the temple. Uh, This is a term that's designed to kind of describe 
what we would refer to as the avenue of God into our world. Hey, if you, wanted to, if you wanted to know God, if you wanted to meet with God, if you wanted to be in the place where God was going to be in this day and time, you went to the temple. That's where you went. That's where he was. He was with the Jews. He was, he was back in this room that no one went except for the high priest, and that was only one time a year. So this is, this is the big deal. It was this celebration. They all came to where God was, and it was, this, it was this celebration of what he was doing. And it's unbelievable, isn't it? They turned that from a worship celebration with God into a money-making scheme. Hmm, it's devastating. That's verses 12 through 16. Now, verses 17 through the end of the uh, second chapter are the different responses to what Jesus has done. And every time Jesus speaks, every time Jesus acts, there's always responses to what, of, uh, uh, what, what he does, of course. There's always critics. There's critics today. Well, there's critics back in this time, too. Well, verse 17, uh, that is the disciples' response to what Jesus has done. And we looked at that last night. Wasn't that a good passage? Wow. Yeah, I was excited, too, about it. And... Uh, <laughs> I thought that was a really good passage we looked at, verses, verse 17. And, of course, the disciples look at him, and it's, it's not by chance. They all, at the exact same time, they look at him, and, and they all, at the same time now, get this same verse that pops into their head. We're going to talk about that tonight, which is a really neat little deal. But at the same time, they all remember Psalm 69, which says, Zeal for your house will consume me. And that was what was written on the breastplate of the high priest. And it's like for the very first time, for the very first time, they see what that meant. That it was more than just a religious deal for Jesus. It was more than just an annual celebration. You see, as a side note, we, we get kind of tempted to be that way in our life. And see, I don't know how y'all are here in North Pekin, but Christmas with my family sometimes gets that way. We lose the excitement and the meaning of what the whole deal is and it turns into something that it's not. For my family, it turns into, I've got to break out the credit cards. Because they buy for me and I've got to buy for them. And You ever get trapped into that? Well, we've got to get something for them. They get something for us every single year. Fine, I'll get something for them. And it turns into this, well, we'll get them a gift certificate then. Red, do they like Red Lobster? Well, if we buy for them, then we've got to buy for the other cousins. And it turns into this, you see what I'm talking about? I come to dread Christmas. Not because it's, I, I dread celebrating the, the birth of Jesus, but that's not what Christmas is about in my family. We wake up the first thing in the morning, it's a mad dash for the Christmas tree. It becomes, what do I get this year? Christmas in my family, and I see I'm not ripping on my family, maybe, maybe Christmas in our society today is, is the granting of your wish lists. It's the time of the year where you finally get new clothing. It's the time of the year where you get to get what you got. In fact, in our family, we've got so bold that we don't even, it's not even gifts anymore. We give out lists what we want. We have gift exchanges and you tell everybody what you want or we give a cap on the, a $20 cap. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? And we miss that deal. That's really aggravated me and I've, been, I've got things to get around that. But anyway... Um, this is, this is what they see here. The disciples see something in Jesus. They see something in Jesus that they never saw before in the high priest. I mean, hey, the, right, the high priest had all his religious garb. They had the breastplate. They had the, the stones. They had the verse. And they did the right things. They said the right things. They were always there at the right time. I mean, hey, the temple never opened for the Passover celebration without the high priest there praying his prayers, doing that kind of stuff. But there was just something not right about it, something missing. And they come in, and as Jesus runs through the place, and they begin to witness this, at the same time, they say, wow, 
Zeal for your house will consume me. I am so excited about the passage we're going to look at next, which is what we're about tonight. Verses 18 through 22. Verses 18 through 22. Now, verse 17 was the disciples' response to Jesus. Verses 18 through 22 are the leaders of Israel's response to Jesus. John calls them the Jews. Now, throughout the, throughout the book of John, um, and if you have the, the new NIV, I think it's what it's called, the, the new NIV, the TNIV. Uh, I've seen it. I got some paperwork on it. But anyway, they changed the Jews. If you have that book, they've changed it from uh, the Jews to the Jewish leaders. Which is not always accurate, but in this, uh, in this passage it would be accurate. Because the Jews were those who were hostile to the ministry of Jesus. They were the ones that did not understand him. They were the ones that heard his preaching, that, that didn't get in on what he was getting on. They just, they were on a different page. Now, I want to read our passage here, but I want you to, there's a lot of things we could discuss in this passage that John talks about, but he never really elaborates on. In fact, what, what John does in his writing is he will drop clues that he will begin to bring about more fully, talk about more fully throughout the rest of his gospel. Does that make sense? He kind of brings you along. But what he's talking about here, he's not trying to pinpoint down, uh, pin, uh, pin down anything. He's not trying to pinpoint anything, explain everything down to the minutest detail. He, he, he is dropping some hints about what he's going to talk about later, but he's trying to give you a contrast between the disciples and the Jewish leaders. A, dis, a contrast between the disciples and the Jewish leaders. The disciples look at Jesus in the temple. And immediately, all 12 of them catch it. They catch Jesus and who he is. They see. Hey, they see, what, they, they see what God wants them to see in Jesus. In fact, they see God in Jesus. And they see something that's in him. That, well, the, the people in Israel, the, the leaders of Israel, they did not have. They all see it. But you look in the Jewish leaders of Israel, and they look at Jesus, and they missed it. Now, I don't know if that surprises you, but you see, in verses 18 through 22, this whole section is, is just fraught with confusion, misunderstandings. It's like they're on a different page with Jesus. When Jesus talks, they don't even relate. Let, let's read it together. This is, what it, this is how it reads. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show to us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them saying, destroy this temple. And kind of maybe implying, hey, you've already destroyed this one. Hey, you've already destroyed that one. You already destroyed what this whole deal is about. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. The Jews replied, the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the disciples uh, and the uh, words that Jesus had spoken. And so Jesus speaks to these Pharisees. He speaks to the, the Sadducees, the leaders of Israel, and they don't get it. Now, I think, this is, I think this is put together. I think you have these two responses that are right next to each other on purpose. And I find it amazing that, that Jesus, the very moving and acting of God, the long-awaited Messiah that had been talked about all the way throughout the Old Covenant. We understand that, right? We understand there were 333 prophecies concerning Jesus before he was ever born. And, if, and, and he, the prophets had been screaming this. Everyone was, everyone was looking for the Messiah in Jesus' day. And he shows up. And the Messiah was to be the very hand of God in their world. And the people you would just almost guarantee bet, and we're Nazarenes, we don't do that. But I mean, if we would just, if we were to bet... 
If we were to imagine, if we were to just, hey, I mean, put the farm on this one, who is going to catch it? It would be these guys. It would be the religious leaders. It would be the experts in the law. Everyone knows that. It wouldn't be the disciples. It wouldn't be ignorant fishermen. Come on. And yet Jesus comes and who sees him? The ignorant fishermen. Tax collectors. Prostitutes. And the Jewish leaders, they never catch on. And this is, this is not my idea. Uh, and of course, there's an example of this, and you don't have to turn here. Let me just read this to you to, to save us time from flipping back and forth. When the visit of the Magi, and our culture, of course, and our decorations in our houses have kind of misconstrued this idea a bit. When the visit of the Magi come, we've always had the idea that it was three guys, three kings, on top of three donkeys, mules. Hey, we already talked about that number of different things that could have shown up on. And... Um, uh, they come and they've got this frankincense and myrrh with these crowns on. And of course, uh, they show up and, and, and they walk in and that's the deal. But see, that's not the whole deal. These guys did not, did not come by themselves. You understand that, right? They brought a whole a masquerade of people. I mean, they brought probably the armies with them. This is the huge deal. There was a new king being born that the stars were speaking of. Huge deal for them. And when they show up in Jerusalem, it says that Herod and all Jerusalem were shook up over this deal. Listen to this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is this one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Because one morning they get up, they yawn, they walk out to the well to get some water, and whoa, there's an army. Hello. Not just one army, but three kingdoms out there. Huge. Now what happens is Herod wants to know about this deal. Herod wants to know, hey, uh, who is this king? I want to know about it. we got some king guys out here. And who do you think he consulted about finding this new king? Who do you think he consulted about finding this Messiah? Who do you think he went to? You think he went out to the fishermen in the local town? You think he went down to the local prostitute on the corner? You think he dropped by the tax collectors? You know, those guys who collected money for him? Who do you think he went to? I'll read it to you and I'll tell you. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Even the Romans knew. Are you with me? Even the Romans knew. If anybody was going to know when this guy was going to show up, it's going to be the teachers of the law. It's going to be the experts. It's going to be these guys. Yet Jesus shows up and they miss him. Now, folks, that is, that is frightening. Could you imagine if Jesus... Could you imagine if Jesus was moving and acting in our day and we missed him? Let me be more specific. Could you imagine Jesus coming and moving and acting in this service and we missing him? Could you imagine that? That God could come in a phenomenal new way and we wouldn't catch it. That a new moving and acting of God, I mean, a fresh pouring out of his spirit, if you can talk like that, that's the language of our day, and miss him. That's frightening. But what would be more frightening is that we miss him, but the drug dealers out there down the road on the corner, they get him. Do you see the contrast, how real this is? It's almost foolishness. I want to look with you why. How could that happen? How could that happen? Well, what's, what's the formula? Why did the disciples seem and why did, the, why did the Pharisees not? Why in the world, how could that happen? That ignorant fisherman 
could see the Christ, could see God's moving hand and be a part of what he's doing. How in the world could that happen? Well, I want to start with looking at uh, verses 18 through 20, which is our, which is our passage. Um, Jesus, you have to understand from the very beginning that Jesus is the moving and acting of God, period. Throughout the Gospel of John, John even goes as far as to say that Jesus is the Word of God. If God had a word to say, it was Jesus. Everything that Jesus was on his tongue, everything that was on his, on his breath when he was speaking, everything that was on his mind was on the mind of God because he was the complete, full expression of who God was. In fact, he was the demonstration of who God was and what God was doing. And every one of his miracles, everything that he did, every one of his teachings, he constantly says, listen guys, this isn't my deal, it's my father's. Uh, we have this, and, and I can just read this to you really quickly. But we have a ex- perfect example of this in John chapter 7. He shows up to the feast of the tabernacles. He begins to teach, and, this, and the leaders of Israel are amazed. Listen to what they say. Uh, not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews, same guys, the Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? They're like, hold on. They're like, hold on, I know this guy. He's a carpenter, right? He's a carpenter. That's right. That's Joseph's boy, right? Yeah, he fixed my trailer last week. I, I know this guy. Did he take night classes? Is that what it is? How did he get this learning? He's not a scribe. He's a carpenter. Hello. What? Where did he get this? Jesus turns and answers and says, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. It's, it's period. That's bottom line. Hey, you want to know where this stuff is? It's not my stuff. It's his. In fact, I only teach what my father's talking about. I only, I only tell you what I've heard straight from my father. I don't tell you anything else. I don't speak on my own behalf. He's pointing to God. Constantly. So when Jesus comes into the temple, this is God speaking. When Jesus is upset and he's whipping and he's running around and he's flipping over tables, this is God. This is how God is feeling about this. And you look at the Jews and you're wondering how they're going to respond to this. You're wondering how they're going to respond. Obviously, it's truth. Obviously, there's been some, uh, and we looked at this the other night. Obviously, there's been some cheating going on in the money. Obviously, there's been a motive change. Obviously, they're doing things they should not be doing. They've lost their focus. And you're, hey, these guys are supposed to be the representative before God. These are supposed to be the religious of the religious. And that you know how they, res- how they respond. They do not respond to what Jesus has done, but they rebel. They rebel against what he has done. And they do not respond to the correction of God. That's as simple as it is. When, when Jesus speaks the very truth, they do not respond to it, but they rebel against it, and they do not accept the correction that Jesus has offered. In fact, you get that, you get that in their response. You look at verse 20, right after what Jesus has done, he says, stop turning this place, my father's house, into a marketplace, and listen to what they said. Then the Jews replied, it's taken, or then the Jews replied, verse 18, they demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show to us to prove your authority for doing this. It's really interesting. They don't prove their point. First of all, they don't say, um, well, there's nothing wrong with what we're doing. They don't uh, confess up and say, hey, listen, what we're doing is wrong, but you don't understand. We've got this budget we've got to pay for. They don't offer any excuses. They don't try to explain themselves. How they respond is, well, first of all, who are you anyway? Hey, what, for, are you even are you even available to criticize us? You can't. First of all, what position, what authority do you have? What sign can you dazzle us with to show that you even have the authority to correct me? 
doesn't even admit the fact that he's wrong or he's right. Doesn't even, doesn't even try to defend himself as if to say, hey, hey whatever I do is my business. For who are you anyway? You need an illustration. Um, family members. Amazing. Two friends of mine, close friends of mine, um, practically family, went out to uh, see a, a movie. Well, that's okay in our day, as long as they're appropriate. Well, these guys went out to see a, a certain movie and uh, felt that it would be a good movie to watch. The names were Larry and Steve. Larry and Steve. And uh, they went into this movie theater and they begin to watch the movie and it's fine for, for a period of time. But then a part comes on the front screen that was inappropriate. And uh, Larry and Steve are sitting there, but Steve knew it was inappropriate. But it went a step farther because Steve knew that Jesus did not consider that entertainment. He knew that God was saying, I don't consider that entertainment. I don't, this is not what I would do with my spare time. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't, I don't find this intriguing. It doesn't offer me fun or pleasure. This is not entertainment to me. I'm out of here. If you want to come with me, you can. Steve responds to that. Steve responds to that. Doesn't beat himself up, feeling guilty, all that kind of stuff. Hey, he went out. It's appropriate. He felt God speak to him. He responded and left. He walked out of the movie theater and didn't say anything to Larry. He just left. And, and uh, he goes out and he's waiting in the lobby. But he's thinking, hey, the movie just started. And there's another movie over here that started at the same time. He wanted to see it. He knows it's okay. And so he goes in that movie theater and watches it. It's fine. Well, after a while, when Steve doesn't come back, Larry's looking for him. Larry's looking for him. And he's thinking, well, good night. Did he get lost? You know, what in the world? And so he gets up, he goes out there, and he looks in the bathroom, didn't find him. Comes out of the bathroom, looks around the, the popcorn stand, doesn't see him. Kind of stands around, looks, says, well, I don't know where he went, but I'm not missing the movie. He goes back in, watches the rest of the movie. After the movie, he comes out, and he sees Steve sitting over by the front door, by the, by, on the benches, ready to leave. And Larry comes up and says, well, Steve, where'd you go, man? You left, you never came back. I came out looking for you. I thought, well, I thought a number of different things, but you never came back. Where, where did you go? Steve, not wanting to push the issue, just goes, oh, I just, um, I just left, and uh, I went over here and seen this movie. I just didn't want to see it. Larry pushes the issue. And he's like, why? It's a good movie. And Steve's like, well, I, you know, I just didn't. And Larry keeps bugging him. And finally, Steve goes, listen, man, there's a couple parts in there that kept bugging me and bugging me, and then finally, come upon that scene, and I really felt like the Lord didn't want me to watch it, man. I don't think he considered that entertainment. And so I walked out. Now, Larry is confronted. Understand this there. God spoke. Steve responded. Now, Larry could have said a number of different things. Larry could have said, oh, well, it wasn't that bad. Larry could have said, yeah, you're right. I, I put my head down on that, but it got better. Larry could have said, he could have said a number of different things, addressing the issue at hand, responding to it and dealing with it. But instead of Larry doing that, do you know what Larry does? Larry looks at him and goes, well, you're no better. You left and went into another movie theater, didn't tell anybody. That's stealing. So you're no worse than I am. Now, I want you to bring that mentality in the passage. Jesus comes up to the Pharisees. He can boldly confronts the people in the temple that this is sin. This is not what God intended. And instead of the Pharisees dealing with that, what they do 
is they point their finger at someone else. They point their finger at Jesus and say, well, first of all, hey, we're the temple priests. We're the ones that are ordained to work in here. We're the ones that are supposed to be working, hey, prescribed by God. We're the descendants of Aaron. We're the Levite clan. Hey, we're the ones supposed to be working in here. First, who are you to be in here judging us? Who are you to be? You ain't, what's your authority to be in here anyway? And they point to them. Or they, they point to him. They point to him. Don't address the problem. Don't respond to the correction, but point their finger. Does that make sense? No? They don't respond. They don't respond to the correction that Jesus has given. They don't respond to it. They never respond to it. Each and every time throughout this gospel that, that, that Jesus comes in and, and brings in correction and they lie, they, they talk around the point, they, they don't respond to it. They don't respond to it. And they reject it. Which tells you, and Jesus tells you over and over and over, he goes, you're just like your forefathers were. Killed off all the prophets. They never responded to the correction of God in this passage. Never. Now this comes to be more, uh, comes to be more clear when you begin to see the contrast that they do not respond to what Jesus has done. They do not respond to the speaking of God in Jesus Christ. They do not respond to it. In fact, they rebel against it. And they miss everything that he's about. They miss everything that he said. They don't respond to him. But you look at the disciples... And they do respond. Every time they are corrected. Every time they are spoken to. In fact, you look at the disciples and who they are. You've got one of them who's a tax collector. He's sitting at a tax collector's booth. And, and of course, Jesus comes up, speaks to the tax collector, and says, come, follow me. Peter comes up. Uh, he comes up to Peter, an ignorant fisherman, says, come, follow me. There's a point where Peter's upset with Matthew. And of course, he says, hey, deal with this. Every single time. Every single time these guys are corrected, sometimes harshly, they respond to the correction of Jesus. Every single time. And because of that, there's something going on in the midst of the disciples because of their responding to the correction of Jesus that is not going on in the Pharisees. You can see it plainly in the passage, and I'm hoping this will come together for us here. You look in verse 17, and there's a certain word I want you to focus on. This is the word. Uh, It's in the sentence I'll point it out to you. It says, His disciples remembered. Very significant word. doesn't seem important, but it's very, very significant. That word remembered... Are you with me? That word remembered is a verb, but it's not an ordinary verb. There's, there's different uh, understandings of verbs. You, we, we understand this with English. There's an action verb and a passive verb. Now, an action verb tells us that the subject of the sentence is responsible for the action. Typical, typical illustration, this heard it a hundred times. The boy is the subject The ball is the direct object or the receiver of the action. The boy hits the ball. Action verb. The boy's responsible. He's the subject. He's responsible for the action. He hits the ball. That's an action verb. This verb here is a passive verb, which means the subjects, hear this, the subjects are not responsible for the action. The subject are not responsible for the action, which means in the sentence, the boy hits the ball, it would be the ball hits the object. The direct object. The ball hits the boy. In this sentence, his disciples remembered, since it's not an action verb, it means the disciples were not responsible for remembering. In other words, what I was so puzzled with in my initial study of this is that how in the world could 12 disciples all at the same time remember this verse about Jesus and see him and understand, process that all at the same time? How could that be? How in the world could that be? 
But once you study this verse, you find out that it wasn't that that they saw Jesus moving and acting. They jumped back into their memory, began to think about this, digging up this scripture, and came to it. That's an action verb. This is a passive, meaning that at the moment they saw Jesus, there was something else that was acting upon them. I should probably say there was someone else that was acting upon them, causing them to remember this verse. And all 12 of them, all 12 of them remember the scripture. But there's an acting going on them. Don't get excited on me. This is good stuff. There's something going on. You got to hear There's something going on in the disciples that's not going on in the Pharisees. And the total reason is because they're responding, man. God is, they are following Jesus. Does he make sense? No. In fact, he goes in the temple. He doesn't have that kind of authority. They don't understand who the Messiah is. He makes all kinds of decisions throughout this gospel that make no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense whatsoever. But when he speaks, they respond and knowledge is given. The same verb is used in the very same sentence. By the way, this verb is only used like five times in the entire New Testament. But it's used two or three verses later. For instance, it's where Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. The, the leaders of Israel don't understand him. In fact, they make fun of him. They make gestures. <laughs> it's taken 46 years. You're going to raise it in three days? What a dork. You're not going to raise this thing. And it's never good to call Jesus a dork, by the way. And I'm certainly not. But they're upset. They don't understand. You, you, you follow me? But look, who, guess who understands? Listen to this. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled. Now, although it's translated different, that is the exact same word, three words up, or three verses up. That's the exact same word. It's also in the passive form, which means after that Jesus was raised from the dead, something moved upon, probably should say, someone moved upon the disciples and caused them to remember what he had said, and it made sense. But Jesus told them this. He said, hey, listen, after I go to the Father, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and remind you of everything that I've said. And there was an activity going on to the disciples that the Pharisees did not have. Now, this is usually confusing. It was for me until I really had to put this together for some time. But another perfect example of this word, which will make perfect sense to us, is used in the book of Acts. Um, Here's the story. Peter is on his way to Cornelius' house. Cornelius, who's a man of God, has had an angel come and stand before him and grab him and give him a message. This is the account of Cornelius telling this to Peter. It's really neat. Listen to this. Cornelius answered and said, Four days ago, Peter, I was in my house praying at this hour. And at three in the afternoon, a man in shining clothes stood before me. And he said, Cornelius, God has heard and remembered. That word remembered is the word in our passage. And that word remembered is a verb in the passive form. Also, the word heard is not our same word, but it's also in the passive form. It says, he has heard and remembered your prayers and your gifts to the fore. Which means that God is up here in heaven, that Cornelius has prayed to God. He'd offered gifts, done a Christian service, all that kind of stuff. He's heard or he's prayed and acted. And God has heard that. It was an acting upon God and God responded. That, that's what that verb means. That verb means that the response... You see, when the disciples, the reason that they were seeing Jesus... This is so simple. I know I make it sound difficult. But the reason the disciples understood Jesus, the reason the disciples were getting in on the ministry that God was doing in Jesus, the reason they were able to understand what God was doing 
It's because there was a moving and acting upon them, and when God moved and impacted upon them, they responded. The reason that this, uh, the Pharisees, the Jews, the leaders of Israel never caught on to Jesus, it's because when God moved upon them, they did not respond. When God brought correction in their life, they did not respond. When they felt conviction, and we had a great talk about this last night about conviction, didn't we? Conviction, folks, and we had settled this, conviction is not a feeling. You understand that, right? I've heard people all the time say, well, I wasn't convicted. I mean, I know that I did some, and I know that, you know, I don't live like that passage, but you see, I didn't feel bad. <laughs> like conviction is a feeling. Folks, conviction's not a feeling. Conviction is the knowledge of the Word of God coming in contact with our life. We see that we are not like the Word, so we respond to the Word. If we don't respond to the Word, a hardening of our hearts takes place. We become ignorant of what God is doing, and we don't see it. Right. Conviction is not a, oh, I felt bad. Uh, I'm shallow. I never feel bad. That was a joke. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not shallow, but... <laughs> conviction is not a feeling, folks. Conviction is not a feeling. Conviction is the knowledge of the Word of God that God speaks to me. I know that I'm not where I'm supposed to be and I respond to it. And the Pharisees never, ever, ever, in fact, they're pinpointed lying in this passage. So that tells you that seeing the life of Jesus and what's going on inside of Him, if you want that going on inside of you, do you know what the formula for that is? Well, you've got to be of Nazarene, first and all, first force. You've got to be saved and sanctified. Got to go to church every Sunday. Got to pay the evangelist, buy some of his tapes back there. Of course, you've got to give money to Africa. Really important. Uh, we've got an Easter offering. Got to be a part of that. Uh, you got to come to... Well, that's not what I'm finding in the Word. Well, you've got to be smart. That's what it is. You've got to be theological. Yeah, sure, that's what it is. And you've got to understand it. And you have to look... I don't find any of that in here either. You know what I'm finding in here? It's when God moves upon your life, when He speaks, you respond. Every single time. In fact, you don't even have to be a very good person. One of the greatest things that's happened to me in my life in the last year is that I have learned not to judge in Christianity. Because you cannot judge response. You cannot judge response. You cannot look at a person's life and say, they're not living right. Now, are there evidence of the fruit that bear enough? Sure there is. But I tell you, it's very, very, very difficult to tell if someone is responding or not. I'll give you a story. My wife's not here tonight. She gives me permission to use this. Um, for the longest time, uh, her family didn't like me. Can you imagine that? I mean, I am likable. I'm likable, aren't I, Roger? Anyway, I, I'm likable. But her family didn't like me. And... Um, They'd make fun of me and, and tease and, and, and they'd even be brutal while I'm gone. Well, it really hurt my wife's feelings. And she was at this deal and I was preaching a revival. I couldn't be there and her whole family was there. And, and this person in her family was just brutalizing me. Brutalizing me. And Corinna was so upset. She was crying. And she'd come out and she'd called me and she said, I'm, I'm so upset because this particular person is just tearing you apart. And she goes, and it was so neat. because She's like, I want to be Jesus here. And I could hear it in her voice. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, she goes, I want to be a witness. I don't want to be mean. I don't want to sink to their level. But she goes, I want to say something so bad, but I don't. And I looked at her and I said, listen, hey, I understand. But first of all, if someone's brutalizing on me or brutalizing on you, you know, just tearing you down, ripping, being vulgar. So one, you don't have to, you don't have to put up with that. Number two, you can address that. You can address that without being ungodly. 
You know what I'm saying? Sure you can. And we prayed together. And she says, I tell you, if they do it again, I'm going to address them. And I'm going to pray that, it'll come, that God will just take over that situation and I'll use it. Well, she goes in and she wanted to be the response of God in that situation. She didn't say anything. But the next day, the next day, that God, I mean, this is the whole, when they get together, they stay together two or three days. But the next day, same kind of stuff happened. Crenda, in that moment, said, hey, God, help me. Stood up and said, listen, I'm sick of this. If you don't want me to come around, I won't come around. But you're not going to. And she began to address this. This person stood up, and there was a huge, big blow-up and fight. And she said things that she didn't want to. And so the other person, she left. She went out crying. She came out. She goes, I did it terrible. And I said, whoa, hold on. Hold on. Did you bring Jesus in the midst of that situation? She said, yeah, I did. Did in your heart you want to brutalize that person back and say mean and derogatory things for them? She goes, well, no. But I said things that I wish I would have said and I wish it would have come out better and I met my points messed up and my, I didn't work right. But see, she, you don't judge Christianity by how well you do it. You judge it by responding. And even though it didn't come out perfect, she still responded. Does it make sense? And in the midst of my life, in the midst of my life, I know that God is moving and acting within me. And do I do everything right? <laughs> no. I don't do it close. But am I responding? And am I open for him to, to, to move and act in my life so that I begin to do it right? Yes. God desires relationship before he desires righteousness. And out of the relationships, he will mold righteousness in your life. But without responding, you can never have relationship. And the reason these boys did not get Jesus, the reason they didn't understand is they never responded. And you look constantly throughout this, throughout this gospel and you find people like in chapter 4, the prostitute, the Samaritan woman, Who's confronted by Jesus? He says, hey, you got five husbands. Does she rebel against it? No, she responds. And guess what? She sees that he's a Christ. She goes back in. She tells everybody out. They come out. And the whole town is moved on by God. Why? Well, she had correct theology. Oh, man. Why? Well, she had her act together. No, why? She responded, man. She responded to the moving and acting of God in her life. That's phenomenal. I don't want to offend you, but see, you can be an idiot and be a Christian. It's easier. You can be the biggest loser ever walk the face of this earth and be a Christian. Because it's not, it's not rated by performance. It's rated by when I speak, did you respond? When I speak, did you respond? When I moved upon you... Wouldn't it be something if we get to heaven and he doesn't say, what'd you do for me? And you pull out your list of all your Sunday morning attendance, all your tithe receipts, you keep those with you underneath your robe there. And of course, all that kind of, you break that out. And he, wouldn't it be something if that wasn't it, if he just said, hey, listen, every time I ever spoke to you, every time you felt me move on your life, when I spoke to you, did you respond? Wouldn't it be something if that was, if that was the measure? If you want to measure it, that's how you're going to have to measure it. When he speaks to you, do you respond? And if you don't respond, what do you call that? That will lead to... I mean, there's tons of things that will lead to. It leads to hardening. It leads to ignorance. You look at the Jews, and they never did understand who he was. They never did get on what he was. The disciples weren't perfect, but every time that they, every time that they were moved and acted upon by God, they responded. Amen. Last night, we looked at Jesus and what the disciples saw in him. And there was, this, there was this hunger, there was this desire, there was this moving and acting, this life that he lived. When he spoke to you, did you respond? Now, you can categorize response the way you want, but what I mean by respond is when there's an altar call, when there is a time that is made to be stand up and be vulnerable, a time to come forward and expose the back of your neck and say, hey, I am open for correction. 
I am open for discipline. I am open to be molded to your presence. Did you respond to that? Or did you kick back and say, well, I'm not bad. I'm not that bad. Did you compare yourself to someone else? It's a bigger deal than knowing it mentally. It's a physical response in your life. God speaks, I respond. I am absolutely thrilled that Christianity is not dependent upon how well I do it. I want to close with this. There's a little boy, and uh, he lives on a farm. His dad is a farmer. I stole this from an evangelist. His dad is a farmer. And uh, every day his dad comes home, he, he drives a big diesel truck. And uh, he can hear it coming home. And um, he's playing out in the sandbox. Little guy's only about three years old. But uh, every so often he'll look up over the fields. And he lives in Illinois. You know how Illinois is. It's flat and windy. There ain't much there. And um, he, he looks across the fields. It's already been plowed. It's early spring. And so it's, you know, they're, they're planting for that year. And, and he sees his dad's truck way down the road. And he knows dad's coming home. Well, his dad, every time he comes home, the first thing he does, he gets out of the car. His, his wife meets him at the door, and the little boy's out playing in the yard. And he goes in, he gets a big old glass of water, and he sits down with the family, and it's, it's evening time. Well, the little boy is watching his dad come home, and he says, I tell you what, when my dad gets home today, I'm going to bring him out a glass of water. I'm going to bring him out a glass of water. And so what the little boy does, he jumps up out of the sandbox and, of course, he bolts toward the house. He runs into the front door. He runs into the kitchen. He grabs a chair. He drags it across the floor. He slams it up against the sink. He leaps up onto the chair, grabs a glass, turns on the sink. He's filling up the water. He hears his dad's truck pulling, I mean, up, up the driveway. It's a longer driveway, but he hears it pulling up the driveway. He shuts off the water. It's about three-quarters of the way filled. He leaps off the chair, but when he lands, a water glass almost slips out of his hand. And so to help him hold on to it, he grabs it with both hands. But when he does, he kind of grabs the top of it with his finger sticking down in the water. And he's running for the front door. He doesn't even mind to open it up. He just throws his shoulder into the screen door, slams it open. And he runs out and his dad's turned off the truck. He's stepping out of it. And the little boy, as he's running towards his dad with his dirty fingers in the water that are now washed clean, he runs up to his dad with this smile on his face and he hands him this little cup. This muddy glass of water. And he holds it to his dad and he goes, I love you, Dad. And his dad looks at him. Now, his dad has, had asked him to do this time and time before. Hey, you know, it'd be nice, son, when I got home, if you could have a glass of water for me. Now, his son had heard and remembered that his dad had done this. And he says, I'm going to get him a glass of water this time. And this little boy holds a glass of water up and it's filled with the mud. And the little dad takes it out of his hand, a little mud print there on the side. And he looks at his son and he throws the water glass down, it breaks on the ground, and he smacks the little boy and goes, you think I'd drink that? Now, do you think that's what he said? No, the dad took the glass of water and he drank down every drop. Now I'm going to ask you something. Did the little boy do it right? Yes! Yes, he did. Because he responded to his father out of love and there was something going on on the inside. It was not rules, it was not list, it was not do's and don'ts it was God my father has spoken and I have responded and this was the characteristic relationship between that little boy and his father and that's love that's relationship that's Christianity is it really any more than that 
Is it really any more than that? How do you explain salvation and entire sanctification? I, re- I explain it by my Father in Heaven leading me and working with me, walking with me, talking with me. He speaks, I respond. And this is the characteristic definition that's going on in my life. This is what's happening. Are, are you living like that? I'm not, I'm not asking if you're perfect. I'm not asking if you got it all together. I don't care. I'm talking about when He speaks, are you responding? Are there things that he's been speaking to you about week, about this week? Have you been responding? That's why I respond at the end of services. Because it does not depend on how well or how good or how right on or how entertaining the preacher is. If he's preaching from this book, it's truth. And I come into every service seeking, which is seeking to respond. God, I'm here tonight. Hey, I know this guy's preaching. I don't really relate to him. As maybe a teenager might say, he's older than me. He talks different than me. He sings different than me. We don't have much in common. He's not cool according to my standards. But I'm here. He's preaching the word. And can you speak to me? Because when you speak, I'll respond. This is it. Father, we love you this evening. I thank you for the opportunity of being in this service and I praise you that that the new covenant is not based on works that I could boast. And I know that Paul says that, that he might be able to boast, but I would not be able to boast because I could never do it right. I believe that Christianity, the very fundamental of the new covenant, is that when you speak, I respond in every direction that happens in in my life that has turned me and and moved me into a different way, into a different avenue of ministry, into a different phase of my life, has all been because you have spoken and I've responded. In fact, Father, as I stand here tonight and I look at the next five years of my life, I have no idea where I'm going. All I know is like a friend of mine has said, I've woken up this morning, I've heard you speak, and I'm responding to you and knowing that's exactly where you want me to be. I want that going on in my life. Uh, Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Is he speaking to you? Are you where you need to be? Do you have the same burning, passion, focus in your life that Christ has in his? Is your heart beating along with his heart? Are you focused in the same way he's focused? Do you have the same drive, passion inside of you that he has? I challenge you this evening, if you don't, respond. If he's speaking to you about an area of your life, that is not, that's not where you need to be living. It's not how you need to be. Maybe you'd like to respond.